Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, awkwardly flying in on very, very, very visible wires. I can see you hanging from the ceiling, Cam. It's getting quite awkward. Uh, but you shouldn't be up in the skies, to be fair, because uh, it, it's not good for men in this film, which I think we'll get into. And before we get to that, we have to get a little bit loco down in Acapulco. And joining us on this mission, we have a very, very special guest whose credits extend as long as my arm. It's kind of hard to sort of pin him down. He is a man of many talents, a writer, a producer, he is very au fait with the Bond and spy movie world. It is Mr. Bruce Sivilly. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, I mean, I would I would urge people to look you up on IMDb. Your credits are exceedingly extensive. You are far more qualified to talk about spy movies than Cam or I. Well, I appreciate that. I feel that one of the things of having worked on so many projects is that it's hard to keep them all straight. They all kind of blend together after a while, so... Sometimes the less knowledge you have, the easier it is to access it. <laughs> that's what wow. we're relying on. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's how we get by. But um, <laughs> I think before we sort of drift into today's movie, today's topic, let's just quickly brush through your sort of backstory a little bit because you've written books about Superman, about Batman, about James Bond, and about Matt Helm, which is this week's topic as well as helping to produce the Bond documentaries on the sort of 2000 edition DVDs, as well as working on the Laserdiscs as well. Bruce, where does this love of spy movies start for you? I think it started as a kid growing up in North Alabama in the mid-1970s. Right, at, you know, I, was, I was around 10 years old, I guess, when Goldfinger came on TV. And uh, seeing that for the first time just really wowed me, you know, especially the scenes with the DB5. So ever since then, I've been a fan of spy movies. And then later on, you know, the Mad Helm movies would come on, the Armand Flint movies. So I, I would watch any of them I could. I really enjoyed them. And I have a question. In like the 1970s, what does James Bond mean? Oh, no, that's a good question. I mean, I wasn't really that aware of him. I mean, I remember, I think my earliest memory of Bond aside from just ads in newspapers for the movies, which, you know, they used to have actual newspapers with print ads back then for movies with the posters and so on. Uh, but um, I remember seeing the TV ads for, vaguely remember, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and that little making of thing that came on after some CBS movie one night. Uh, and then um, uh, I remember seeing the TV ads for Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, and thinking, well, that looks kind of neat. But I didn't actually see a Bond film until, as I say, Goldfinger came on TV. Because living out in the country, we didn't get out to movie theaters very much. I was 20 miles away from the nearest city. Mm -hmm. I was just curious because, you know, when we, we interviewed Gloria Hendry a little ways back on the podcast and asked her, you know, about when she was cast in Bond, what it meant. And she was saying, well, in like the 1970s, it just, it wasn't like it is now. If you were cast in a Bond movie in the 2020s, it's a massive deal, but kind of that post-Connery period was a little uncertain, I suppose. Well, even the Connery period was a little uncertain in terms of the, the actresses appearing in them because they didn't really go for top-name actresses. They were going for, you know, 
women who were just starting to break in or, or beauty contestant winners and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, so you end up with a lot of them being revoiced and so on. Um, but, in, and part of that, I think, was Cubby Broccoli, uh, you know, trying to keep the budgets in control somewhat and put the money on screen rather than spending it on big names, which, you know, I've always said, as much as I'd love to have seen Sean Connery and Honor Majesty's Secret Service with Diana Rigg, if he had made that movie, it wouldn't have had Diana Rigg. Mm, yeah. Because the only reason she's hired was because they needed an experienced person in that film to balance out Lazenby. But but yeah, at, at that point, I think in the 70s, the, the Bond boom really hit mid-60s. I do remember as a kid having an odd job hand puppet with a sort of vinyl head <laughs> and a little plastic body and a little plastic cap. I had no idea the bowler was supposed to chop people's heads off. It was like six when I had this. And I I just liked it because, hey, it's a Chinese figure, and you didn't see many Chinese things in stores in Alabama at that time. I feel like we should bring that back and make it like a Spy Hards thing on, on our Redbubble page. Just, uh, yeah, little hand puppets. Well, there was, yeah, there was a Connery hand puppet, an odd job they had uh, once from The Man from Uncle. So cause my brother had the Elia Kuriakin one. So, yeah, it was a thing. But, uh, yeah, by the 70s, I think the Bond boom was kind of waning. And you could sort of tell, you know, the box office was going down a little bit after Majesties. You could tell that by how they went from being sort of widescreen movies or Thunderball and You Only Live Twice at Majesties to being, uh, and Diamonds. And then Live and Let Die was, you know, like a Academy ratio, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And Man with the Golden Gun. They were kind of smaller budgeted. Well, you know, you heard it here first, folks. The Condor Man hand puppet is coming your way. You can stuff your hand right up Michael Crawford's backside whenever you like. What's scary, Scott, is that I was going to make the exact same joke about the exact same movie. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this too long. We have been doing this too long. But, uh, Bruce, pivoting off slightly, but keeping it on track with Bond, because I mentioned the books, I mentioned the DVD extras that you did with John Cork. Um, you know, James Bond, the legacy is a book you guys put out in, in 2002, which is sort of seen as one of the Bibles of Bond fans that go to, you know, for knowledge and, and, and insight. And also those DVD specials, I think they're still used on Blu-ray releases now. They're very well made. I suppose the question I have for you, um, how did that sort of relationship with Eon and, and the Broccoli's, how did that all come to be? For me, that came to be through knowing John Cork, and I met him in my sophomore year, I think, at USC, when we both sort of bonded over Bond. We were both big James Bond fans. We were <laughs> both from Alabama. He's from Montgomery. I grew up on the Tennessee state line. But we met each other at USC. There was a, a few other friends of ours who were big James Bond fans. John had the old 1960s James Bond board game. We would actually spend all night long some nights when we were in college playing the James Bond board game, but with a twist where you had to answer a trivia question asked by the other player before you could make your move. So so it was it was interesting. But uh, John then went on to uh, to write The Long Walk Home, which is a very good movie with Whoopi Goldberg, Sissy Spacek, civil rights drama, which uh, got him an agent, uh, which got him a meeting with Barbara Broccoli, and uh, he started working... Uh, sort of behind the scenes on the Bond films a little bit. And then around that, not too long after that, he he was involved in doing the um, laser discs for Thunderball and Goldfinger. And about, and I helped out on that. He enlisted me for that. 
And uh, about four years later, he calls me up and says, hey, they're doing DVDs now of all the Bond films up through, uh, I think initially it was going to be Licensed to Kill, and then we ultimately went through um, Tomorrow Never Dies, I believe, where the world is not enough, went through the world is not enough, yeah. And uh, he asked if I wanted to work on them, and I didn't have to think twice about that. I said, absolutely. And thus began a year and a half of working nearly seven days a week, you know, every waking moment a working moment but we put in all that time because we were both fans and wanted to make those as good as we could get them well i think the the work still stands up now they're still used as reference points it you know again much like the book you guys put out they're what people go to for insight in james bond because behind the scenes stuff was really the invent of, of dvds really they were on some laser discs but dvds really made them popular and that was, for a lot of people, their insight as to how films were made. So I think credit to the both of you for putting such wonderful pieces of sort of documentarian work on these on these films. Well, I appreciate that. And as I say, we put a lot of a lot of time and effort into them to try to get them as... I always say, you know, when I go back and look at them now, I can see little mistakes here and there, things I wish I had done differently. But... Um, you know, I, I feel like you you just do the best job you can with the time and budget that you have, <laughs> you know, and then you have to let it go and move on to the next one. So you should hear our first few episodes. <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> I am curious when you were putting those docs together, was there any movie in particular that was the toughest one to kind of assemble the documentary on? The early ones were, were tough because uh, they're. Around 1969 or so, I think they had done a sort of house cleaning at, at Pinewood and just destroyed a lot of the old behind-the-scenes footage and outtakes and so on, uh, which is, you know, heartbreaking now. But it's kind of like the BBC reusing their videotape and, you know, taping over classic episodes of yeah. the Peter Cushing Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who and so on. Um, but, you know, back then, no one had any idea that there would be any home market for movies. You know, uh, to the extent it existed, it was only Super 8 and 16 millimeter films that you paid a lot of money to get an edited down version of. So, but uh, yeah, the, the early ones are tough. And then for me personally, one of the toughest to do was A View to a Kill, because in my opinion, it's, I won't say it's the worst Bond film. It's the one I like the least. I do know Bond fans who enjoy it. My first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't defend it. I can't defend yeah, it. Yeah, I had to watch it like seven times working on the DVDs. <laughs> so it was it was tough. So you weren't happiest in the saddle. <laughs> no, I was not. And and somehow John uh, seemed to be busy with working on some of the other ones and things needed to get done on View to Kill. Why don't you do that, Bruce? <laughs> you know, so. Well, pivoting over from uh, like a franchise with such prestige like James Bond, where people are literally spending years putting documentaries together for them we have one man and that is you bruce who have made a book about matt helm and that is booze bullets and broads behind the scenes of dean martin's matt helm films of the 1960s which is available now on amazon i've grabbed a copy it's wonderful very insightful and it's part it's basically the main reason why you're here to stay with us because you literally wrote the book on matt helm and there's a little bit of a story about that i had um done a Batman book that I self-published and uh, afterwards uh, thought, you know, I had I had an interest in the Mad Helm films. I was kind of fascinated with just all the, 
the uh, interrelations of Matt Helm films and James Bond movies and the people who worked on them and how they kind of influenced each other and so on. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I, this would be something fun to research and write a book about. And I thought, but I, I can't imagine there's more than like five or six people besides me who really care enough about this to want to buy a book on it. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just do it as an ebook on Amazon, see what happens. And that was ooh, 10 years or more ago. And I'm happy to say that, you know, it still sells one or two copies every, every month or so, <laughs> you know, so there are more people out there interested interested in it than I thought, and I am uh, hopeful that uh, maybe by the year's end I'll have done an expanded paperback edition of it. Nice. And, I mean, I can attest that, like, uh, you know, we look at the download numbers of our episodes every week, and there's definitely an audience for Matt Helm. It's really interesting, you know, because those movies, as we know, they're not the best. Uh, the books are quite good, but they are definitely not woke reading material. <laughs> <laughs> you know. so you know but i i think what are you talking about the progressive as uh, as a as it could be you know it's kind of interesting i i was writing about the movies i kept thinking you know here you have james bond in his aston martin and then you get dean martin as matt helm in a station wagon it's like the unsexiest car possible <laughs> but going back and looking through my, my notes on the book and all that it's like yeah you know matt helm in the books often used a station wagon as his means of transport. <laughs> so so it's not like the films were doing doing that on purpose necessarily. No, I think it was it's definitely a product of his time, but you know, I'm glad you've stepped forward and and sort of put the the book together because there really isn't any other tome of of information about Matt Helm and I think anyone who has enjoyed our coverage of the films, who enjoys Dean Martin, who enjoys 60s spy films. I think it's worth picking up and, and just having a peruse through. You'll definitely learn a few things about Matt Helm. And speaking of Matt Helm, Cam, it's time for us to all drop our pants and salute. <laughs> what are we talking about this week? We are tackling 1967's The Ambushers, the third Matt Helm adventure. Are we surprised it got this far? I know I am. I don't know. I can kind of see it. 60s was a crazy time. It it certainly was. It certainly was. I mean, I, easy for me. I'd never seen this at all. I had no knowledge of this before we started this podcast, and I sort of saw the Matt Helm films. Um, but Bruce, when did the ambushes fall on your radar? Well, again, after uh, ABC began broadcasting the, the James Bond films, they then broadcast the first couple of Matt Helm movies because they were seeing the audiences they were getting for Bond. And also at that time, you know, Dean Martin was still alive. He was still doing, uh, I think he still had his TV show going in the mid-70s, or at least doing a lot of TV specials. And, um, you know, so there was definitely a bigger audience for it then. And CBS eventually broadcast the uh, final two. So I saw them first on TV, just like I did with the Bond films. And I, Cam, I assume your story hasn't changed? Mine has not changed at all. Yeah, I had not seen this film. Okay. Well, I think then before we chart a course from Murderer's Road to the Ambushes, let's get that letterbox.com synopsis out into the open. Matt Helm rides again with the Ambushes on his back and some fun on the side. When an experimental flying saucer crashes, <laughs> secret agent Matt Helm has to bring back the secret weapon hidden on board. Wait. 
what weapon was hidden on board? I thought the flying saucer was the weapon. It is. They've got that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Letterbox.com. You're being called out by a true expert in Bruce. You got it wrong. To be fair, it is about recovering an experimental flying saucer. So, sort of. This is true. As much as there, as much as any Mad Helm film is plot-driven. Yeah. Uh, it's usually a shame when it begins to be plot-driven, I would say. Which uh, mm. I think we will get back into. But, um, Cam, how did we get ambushed? Well, and also we have, of course, a Mad Helm expert here. So, Bruce, feel free to jump in at any point. I'm probably going to throw to you for at least a couple details. But... Um, this was the based on the sixth uh, Donald Hamilton novel, which was published in 1963. And Bruce, I'm assuming you've read that novel? Back when I was doing the book, yes, I did. I haven't uh, reread it for this podcast. But, uh, you know, what I will say about those um, Donald Hamilton novels, they are very well written. He was quite a good writer uh, and had done some uh, westerns before the Matt Helms. I think uh, one of them became The Big Country, the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, you know, when, when Ian Fleming started having success with James Bond, he wanted to do an American version and started writing Matt Helm around 1960. But, uh, yeah, there, you know, he, he, he writes in a very kind of he-man, man's man, hard-boiled style, but very breezy, very readable. The stories are, you know, no more outlandish than some of the Fleming stories. And um, this one in particular, the... You watch the film and think, boy, this is just a lot of ludicrous nonsense, but it's not that far removed from the plot of the novel. Really? Except that there is no flying saucer in the novel. In the novel, he's going... Oh. I know. (laughs) I was so excited. In the novel, he's going into the jungle to get a missile launcher that's on a mobile uh, device, sort of like the flying saucer is at the end of this film. So it's a mobile missile launcher he's got to find. However... Right about the time this movie came out, Donald Hamilton released his latest Matt Helm novel called The Menacers, which is about Matt Helm going after a secret weapon flying saucer. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I don't know how much the book influenced the the movie or the movie influenced the book, but uh, they did collide in a different book later on. (laughs) As long as the flying saucer finally made it into the literary world, I'm happy. So there was a 1965 Los Angeles Time article during the production of The Silencers announcing that The Ambushers would be the second film in the franchise and that they had the rights. And they had two writers who came in to work on this. It was Richard Levinson and William Link. They were a writing team. started out in the late 50s with an episode of Resting House, Desi Lou Playhouse, and just went on to work heavily in TV. Like, basically any of the classic shows of that period, but like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Johnny Ringo, The Fugitive, and then they rolled into this uh, movie. They're probably best known, honestly, though, for what they did post-Ambushers, where they created shows like Mannix, Columbo, Murder, She Wrote. So they were like a very, later on especially, prestigious duo, uh, and worked together right from the early days, to uh, 1987 when uh, Levinson uh, died of a heart attack at the age of 52. But pretty long um, filmography there and a lot of very collaborative efforts there. Um, At a certain point, it was announced that Ambushers was being pushed back in favor of Murderer's Row. And so Murderer's Row wound up being the second film. I am curious, just in your sort of work, Bruce, do you have a sense of why that was? Not particularly, but, uh, you know, I know that all of these uh, 
movies went through several writers, and that's not unusual for Hollywood. The the thing is finding the ones who actually end up getting credit for it, you know. And usually you don't know about that unless you can find uh, drafts of the script by the other writers, you know. Um, or in my case with the book, uh, it was just, again, going through the archives of the LA Times and Variety and, and uh, other newspapers at the time to see who was announced as working on what, when, you know. So that's how I came across that Levinson and, and Link link. Mm -hmm. um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know why they switched over to Murderer's Row necessarily, but it, it may have had to do with budgeting or who knows. But th this was all during the silences because the silences advertises Murderer's Row at the end. So it's not like a, when like some of the James Bond films where they said James Bond will return in X, but it turns out to be Y. They do get it right every time in the Matt Hill films. Yeah, in terms of what's actually on screen, yes. Mm, but, I mean, yeah. if they were announcing that midway through production of Silencers, they must have realized at a certain point that just whatever they were working on as well with Murderer's Row was going to be ready probably sooner or something. I mean, maybe it's a theory. This could be wrong or right, but there was also the story about them rushing production of Murderer's Row because of Casino Royale 67 being an absolute mess. So mm -hmm. maybe they're like, maybe Murderer's Row was just easier to shoot, quicker to shoot, and they could just bang it out. Possibly. Yeah, it could be. And again, that came out, you know, in the same year as the silencers, you know, uh, mm. and it sort of started the trend with the Matt Helm movies. The Matt Helm's releasing right before Christmas. The uh, the famous year 1966. That's it. <laughs> it doesn't quite work as well when you say 1967 or 1968. It just, you know, no. just doesn't have the same same flow. Yeah, it was, it was a magic year. It was. It was a magic year, I, 66. I remember it well. It really was. It was the year that... The year that Batman premiered, you know, so. Yep, and Star Trek. And Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, you know, as they began to roll into focusing on ambushers, they brought back writer Herbert Baker, who'd contributed on Silencers, but played a major role in the screenplay for Murderer's Row, and also brought back um, Henry Levin, who had directed Murderer's Row one year earlier. And, you know, he'd over the course of his career, been kind of a journeyman director, done things like Journey to the Center of the Earth, Genghis Khan, or Honeymoon Hotel, which is a uh, comedy with Robert Goulet and Nancy Kwan. And Nancy Kwan, of course, will appear in The Wrecking Crew uh, that we will tackle further on down the road. And Ambushers was Henry Levin's last film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So careful what you say, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> no, no comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the majority of this movie was, saw, was shot in central Mexico, which is a bit of a difference from Murderer's Row, which was almost entirely shot in L.A. with um, second unit shooting international locations. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Ambushes, they shot in uh, uh, Cuernavaca and Acapulco. And I believe the hotel you see in the film and all the sleigh girls are around the pool and so on. Um, that is the hotel they were actually staying in. You know, I think it's the Las Brisas, which I could be mistaken. I think that's the one that all the cliff divers are, are usually viewed from. Well, this, is, this actually brings up an interesting question that I was probably going to say for the review, but it's a natural point. The girls dancing around the pool, I've always known them as the sleigh girls for the first two films, but this film opens and calls them the ambushers. Are they a different formation of women that are after Matt Helm? <laughs> No, I think they're still sleigh girls. Uh, 
I think it's called The Ambushers just because that's the book title, and you've got the song The Ambushers, which I have a comment on. <laughs> uh, but they they just they just it, you're making a an assumption that because we see the women so much in the main titles that they are the ambushers. And the song kind of alludes to that, that the women will ambush you and all this kind of stuff, you know. But uh, I don't think they are, quote unquote, the ambushers in the world of the movie. They're still the sleigh girls. Interesting thing about that title song, though, if you watch the coming attractions trailer, they have a little bit of the theme song at the end. And it is not Boyce and Hart singing. Oh. And unless I'm mistaken, it's Frank Sinatra. Whoa. Now that's cool. And I've tried for years to find out if he recorded that and why wasn't it used. And uh, I know John Cork at one point was interviewing uh, not Nancy Sinatra, but her sister, and and asked her about that because they were archiving all of Frank's. This is not long after he died, all of his songs and music. And, a, and she said she had no knowledge of that at all, you know. Um, but when you watch, just just go on YouTube, watch the trailer. You get to the end. I, if it's not Frank Sinatra, it's a very close sound alike. And it's not Perry Como, right? Yeah. I, I'll, I'll see if I can find a clip of that to put online. People can can let us know if they think it's uh, Mr. Sinatra. Well, and he was also uh, approached by Cubby Broccoli to sing the theme to Moonraker. Hopefully, with different lyrics <laughs> and perhaps a different song, because uh, not not one of the great Bond songs. Well, well, I mean, the the ambushers' lyrics aren't exactly winning any awards either. Also true. Also yeah. true. But the song is pretty peppy and lively, and and uh, I do have to say, as far as the music for all the films goes, this one I this one to me is the best in a lot of regards, and music is one of them. I really enjoy Hugo Montenegro's score. I, I say bring bring back uh, Dino Desi and Billy. I say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a note, of, yeah, about Hugo Montenegro, who um, was replacing Lalo Schifrin, who was replacing Elmer Bernstein uh, from the first film. But uh, this was very early work for Hugo Montenegro and would go on to do Wrecking Crew as well, but most notably composed the theme song for I Dream of Genie, which I'm sure made him probably a fair amount of money over the course of his life. And he did a reworking of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly that was a staple of my childhood. And that is that was the version of that song that I knew forever until I actually saw the original movie. There you go. And I think people of our generation, when we think Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, we think Hugo Montenegro wrote it, not Ennio Morricone. But, but... Mm-hmm. Yep, that's how I felt growing up. But there's no equal to Morricone, period. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. And uh, there was um, a worldwide search was conducted for this film uh fashion designer oleg cassini was it to uh, find a plot <laughs> no oleg cassini did an international search for 11 models to appear in the ambushers and sport his new wave look fashions which would be used as part of a promotional tie-in for the movie i don't know that i could spot these new wave fashions in the movie but i can say that scott is sporting them right this moment <laughs> I, I'm ambushing you with it. <laughs> yeah, it's the first film that Cassini designed clothes for and also uh, supposedly designed the makeup and hair for the for the women as well. The part about the, the search for the women to play the sleigh girls and so on, most of them who appear in the film were, um, had been, some of them had been used before in the previous films. Some were uh, fashion models that they hired. But I think that kind of falls into the same category as those ads that were put out um, I think after Goldfinger, when they thought the next 
or during Goldfinger when they thought the next film would be uh, Under Majesty's Secret Service, and it was, you know, ladies be a Bond girl, you know, right? So they, you know, it's it's more of a promotional thing than anything else. Well, even on the uh, film poster, it says, "See the fabulous sleigh girls in Acapulco dressed to kill by Cassini." Absolutely, yeah. He got a. I mean, they got a lot of promotion out of that because he was a very well-known fashion designer at the time. And they fit great, I have to say. Well, to say. <laughs> some of the women who appeared in the film said they did not fit that well, and they didn't like wearing them, and he wanted them to not wear brassieres when they wore them, but some of them wore their swimsuits underneath. Um, so, yeah, you know, if you ask the models, they might have something else to say. And they were, of course, the models were also getting a little miffed because they were getting, like, you know, $35,000 to appear in the film and tied up for five or six weeks when as fashion models they could make substantially more than that for a day's shoot so mm. so after a while they began getting a little little tired of being on the on the film right makes sense and a note that I came across multiple times maybe Bruce you can explain this one that the movie was originally gonna be known as the devastators is that true um, they had announced that one of the next him films would be The Devastators, which I think is also a, the title of one of the novels. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, it wasn't that The Ambushers is going to be known by that title. It's just that they were always announcing this title or that title, and then some of them got made, some of them didn't. Right. Uh, the Ministers didn't, The Devastators didn't, uh, The Ravagers didn't. So. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the movie had a budget of $4 million dollars. Domestically, it did $10 million, so over doubled its, bu its budget domestically. And the top three for the year, number one was The Graduate, number two was The Jungle Book, and number three was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a good year. And of those, I saw, I saw The Jungle Book in the theater at that time. Yeah, I was very, very young, about five years old. Um, but out of the three, The Graduate, best movie, absolutely. So. I I think, yeah, I would agree with that. Jungle Book was actually the first movie I ever saw in theaters as well. Hmm. Small world. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Feeling left out, Scott? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, actually, I'm not because I'm younger, so I'm happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And just a couple of final notes. This movie marked um, the final turn by James Gregory as Mac. Um, he was recast for the next film by John Larch. And uh, Janice Rule who is one of the leads in this movie, later called The Ambushers the worst movie she ever made. So she made some good stuff. Three Women is a masterpiece. So um, I don't, I mean, I have to go through her entire filmography to determine if I agree with her or not, but uh, she had strong opinions on The Ambushers. She's the most unusual of the leading ladies in the, the Helm series, I think, in that she seems more... She seems to be, uh, how do I put this, of a, a different class of actress. Yeah. Mm. But uh, she she had uh, been performing on Broadway as a singer-dancer until she sprained her ankle. Then she went into acting, studied at uh, the Actors uh, Institute, the Actors Studio, sorry. And um, I don't know if she met Ben Gazzara there or not, but she was married to him at the time she was doing The Ambushers. So I guess, you know, dealing with Ben Gazzari during the day, uh, you know, she, she probably didn't mind too much going out and uh, being in a Dean Martin movie, um, you know, the rest of the time. She did say that she had a great time working on the film because Dean Martin was so easy to work with. Yeah. Uh, she also said that at one point she wanted him to do a, a second rehearsal with her for one of the scenes. 
And uh, he responded, well, you know, you can you can rehearse by yourself at night or you can rehearse with the director, but you're only going to get one rehearsal out of old Dino. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't show in the film at all. <laughs> that, that definitely tracks. Yeah. James Gregory, I, I'm not sure why he was replaced by John Larch, although he was uh, getting, I think, better film offers uh, around this time, so especially in like Western films, more substantive roles. This was also the last film for Beverly Adams as uh, Lovey Craves It, you know, because it was during the promotion of this film in London that she met Vidal Sassoon and decided she was going to retire from acting and raise a family. I get it. I would have retired with him too. <laughs> <laughs> in, in my Cassini outfit. Oh, yes. Mm. Your new wave look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, it's time for your physical. Let's talk about it. It's ambushes time. Bruce, you're our guest. What do you think about the ambushes in the year 2023? Well, I have to say, first off, when I saw these films originally, I really enjoyed them as quirky and odd and, and kind of low-budget, almost TV quality as they are compared to Bond. You know, uh, they get by, all of these films get by on the persona of Dean Martin. And uh, as I got older, I began to really think less and less of them. I have to say, re-watching this one again just a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, I was surprised how much I liked it. It, it held up better than I remembered it. And for me, I'd say that I think it's probably the best of the four films. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think it's got the most consistent tone throughout. I like the Hugo Montenegro music. I like the settings, um, even though a lot of it is definitely, you know, studio bound. You know, it's like Star Trek level production design here. Of, oh, that, that Acapulco scene's definitely shot on a soundstage, you know. Um, but I also think in, just in terms of, the villain, this has the best villain for me of any of them. And Albert Salmi is the best actor playing a villain. I think he is really creepy in this film. And, uh, you know, he's he's an interesting guy who had, um, had been a private detective uh, early in his career until the detective agency he was working for said all their agents needed to carry guns. And he didn't want to do that, so he quit and became an actor. Yet, ironically, he ended in 1990... Uh, shooting and killing his estranged wife and then killing himself yeah i came across that so his aversion to guns didn't last forever so Good grief that's a that's a that's a bad end to the guy it is yeah and and but uh again watching him in the film i think he's just a, he's got this very kind of simian way of walking and the little tinted sunglasses and kind of mo howard haircut and all that he's just a bizarre looking guy and um and and the fact too that uh, in the backstory he has raped Sheila Summers, you know, and seems intent on doing it again at the end. He's a really nasty piece of work. Whereas Carl Malden to me is almost, you know, yes he's a supervillain, but he'd be a nice guy to sit down and have dinner with, <laughs> you know. And Victor Buono, the the least said about Victor Buono, the better because it's just you know, uh, yeah. He's a good actor, but but yes. well, not in that role. Yeah, agreed, agreed on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it it's a tough one because I I didn't really want to bring up that topic about what he had done in a sense, but I think it's an important thing to to briefly touch on because I I think it makes him completely completely evil, irreparably evil. There is no coming back. Whereas, as you say, Carl Morden is basically a mustache twirling Bond villain, and much as the chap in in the first one was there's some questionable choices with that again he was basically just a blow fell this stock villain basically yeah yeah he's a cartoon yeah i'm gonna destroy the world villain 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a sense, I understand them trying to do something different here and, and giving them an edge. Um, I, I'm not sure they needed to go that far, but I suppose they don't like, outright say what he did, but it is very much heavily alluded to. Yeah, and in the novel, uh, the the, um, the villain in the novel had a different name, I believe. Um, but uh, but yeah, he had also tortured Sheila Summers. It's not, I, I'm not sure if it's, it's been so long since I read it, I can't remember if it's specifically rape, but he had definitely uh, tortured her in the past, and that's part of the reason she wants to be involved in the mission to get her revenge on him. So, In a way, it's kind of like synthesizing what the, the, the serious tone of the book into the film, in a way, um, which I actually hadn't appreciated until you, you brought it up there. So that's interesting they do that. But um, Cam, do you mind if I jump in with this one? Go nuts. I did, watching this film. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> You know I enjoyed the first two. I'm not mm. saying they were home runs, but they were fun spy-fi, spy-ence fiction, if you will, <laughs> uh, from the 60s. This has just gone completely off the rails, off of the side of the coast onto the beach. <laughs> I mean, this film, to me, is as creaky as the wires holding up that flying saucer. And I, I couldn't get past it. I, I just, both times viewing it, I just felt that this was such a subpar version of a Matt Helm story. Like, they, it felt like they weren't trying. Like, like there was, because there's this Dean Martin charm, and I spoke about it last time. He is a charming guy. He has this, I mean, he's doing these pretty like, questioning behavior towards women sometimes in the films, but you always feel like there's a, a good intention behind it, and he's he's a safe person to be around, and I genuinely seems like a nice guy. He always sort of portrays that. There's always a sense of like Dean Martin is like winking at everyone in the audience, male or female, and being like, yeah, I know this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous, right? Well, it happens in this film when he gets picked up by that, that girl on the moped and it's like a grab onto something. It's like a, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, breaking the fourth wall, as they say. Yeah. So for the for me, the Dean Martin charm still kept me through the film. He is always fun to be around. But it felt like the rest of the film was on life support. And I just struggled with it. Whereas I could go back and watch those first two films pretty harmlessly. A nice way to spend a couple of hours in an afternoon. This one, I just don't think I'd ever go back to. I really struggled with it. Cam, what did you think? I think I fall somewhere in the middle. In that, for me, there's elements of this one that are as strong, if not the strongest of the franchise so far for me in this watch going through at least for my first time um i also appreciated that this one didn't feel as much like a replica of the silencers as murderers row did it felt like it was doing some different things you know we can talk about say like the villain and the treatment of you know the sheila summers character and how that's a little uncomfortable in terms of meshing tones but Mm. it feels a little different like they had a different angle they were looking to tackle a mad helm adventure with versus Murderer's Row really felt like they just looked at the silencers and said, uh, copy that one. And I like that from this one, that it felt a little different. Um, for me, where this one struggled was pacing issues. I found, like, the new characters were interesting to me, but it didn't feel like the kind of overall caper they were involved in had any propulsion to it whatsoever. And this is... Is this the longest one we've tackled so far, Scott? I feel like it is, but Bruce might be able to correct me on that. Is this the longest of the Matt Helms? I am not sure. 
I know Wrecking Crew is longer, but I think that this one was longer than Silencers and Murderers Row, maybe? Even if by just a couple minutes? This is actually not the longest. Oh, really? Uh, Murderers Row is the longest. Uh, well, Wrecking Crew is the longest, but Murderers Row is the second longest. Okay. Yeah, I mean, to me, this one just felt the longest to me in terms of sure. pacing. And So often I have conversations with people who will grumble about, oh, you know, the new Avatar is three hours or whatever. And I'll say, like, it's not how long the movie is. It's how it's paced. Mm-hmm. You can watch a three-hour movie that flies by, and you can watch, like, a 90-minute movie that feels like an eternity. This one, to me, just did not have even the zip of the previous two, yep. even though I liked what it was doing a lot of the time. And there's a number of uh, elements to it that when we talk about likes, I'm going to be very positive on. But for me overall, just as a viewing experience, sitting down for, you know, just under two hours to watch a Matt Helm adventure... This one didn't grab me, I would say, as much as the previous two. And I'd say I didn't really have as much fun with this one than I did the last two. I did at times. At times, it was about equal. It's just that overall, it didn't have... Like, the first one, especially to me, it got a little draggy once you got to kind of the villain lair stuff. Sure. But by and large, it felt a little bit like a Matt Helm party. Whereas, like, Mm -hmm. this one, the party had some lulls. (laughs) Yeah. Although I will note there is some continuity between the silences and uh, the ambushes. Okay. They both feature big red throbbing things. <laughs> it's back, baby. <laughs> that is true. I was going to say, I think that's going in the book when I write it now and I redo it. Oh, yeah. Please. Give us a quote. We love it. We love it. <laughs> But they didn't like recycle, say, like the uh, the bed tilting into the pool again. Like I like that they no. dropped some of the staples. They didn't do the bed tilting into the pool. And they also, this is the only one I think that doesn't have the song parodies. Mm. Maybe if it had the song parodies, that would have picked the pace up for you. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I made a comment about these at one point that I'd forgotten about until John Cork reminded me of it. It's like, I didn't know I said this, but he claims I did. Uh, where he says that... Um, I said to him at some point that when you watch the Matt Helm movies, it's the nearest equivalent isn't like the James Bond films or anything like that. It's Elvis movies. Right, sure. Because the Elvis movies are their own genre, and they get by on the persona of the main character who, no matter what his name is, it's Elvis. The Matt Helm movies get by on the persona of Dean Martin, and he's playing Matt Helm, but it's Dean Martin. To the extent that the trailer to Murderer's Row actually says, in letters on the screen, see Dean Martin save the world. So that's clearly the attraction of these films, is you're going to see Dean Martin, who at that time, his TV show was just taking off. He was the number one rated TV star in the in America, as well as being uh, still a film star with the Matt Helm movies. So, you know, you're going to watch Matt, uh, Dean Martin play Spy for two hours. And it's appropriate, you know, this one is written by Herbert Baker, who wrote an Elvis movie, King Creole. Yeah, and I think Baker also wrote a lot of the uh, nightclub acts for Dean Martin and things like that, a lot of, in some of his uh, variety shows. Right. It, it would make total sense. Um, okay, well, let's let's talk about the good stuff, you know, before we ambush ourselves with some bad stuff. Bruce, what's something you really enjoy about the ambushes? Well, aside from Albert Selney's performance, uh, you know, I, I like Dean in this one. He's, he recycles a joke that he'd used in two other movies with the skull. Of course, the skull has got ice in it. Um, you know, he's, <laughs> he seemed to enjoy that joke because it's the third film he's used it in. Um, you know, I think 
To me, he still seems to be having some fun with this one. Would Murderer's Row to me is the one where both he and James Gregory look in the scenes like they are drunk off their ass 90% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he seems a little more sober through the ambushers, you know. And uh, I just enjoy these films for a lot of the kind of, a lot of goofy reasons, like, uh, you know, one of the things that attracted me in writing the book is, you know, here he's got this little ray gun that will kind of lift devices, not unlike the watch that Bond has, you know, because Matt Helm uses it to uh, undress a woman. Bond uses a watch in Live and Let Die to do the same thing, a magnetic watch. Um, You know, you've also got working with the a spy uh, who's from the opposition, like you do in Spy Who Loved Me. Um, you know, and you've got the uh, cigarettes that, that kind of make people laugh and get silly and so on. And, uh, it's, you know, in that same year, James Bond is using a cigarette to get out of his predicament at, at the end of You Only Live Twice. <laughs> you know, a little missile-firing cigarette. Yeah. And you've got the uh, the brazier with the guns out of the 10th victim, you know. So there's just a lot of other kind of film crossovers that seem to course through this movie. Well, even the bit where they're showing the cigarettes that fire a dart, mm-hmm. it's or the bullet or whatever, it's very much like when they test the... Uh, wrist dart thing in Moonraker uh, on the painting. Yeah. It's also, uh, I will also just note there's a there's a poster for this film. I don't know if it was done later on with like VHS releases or something like that, but it, it's Matt Helm riding his motorcycle at the end. That is the one sheet. It threw someone's legs. Is that the one sheet? Oh, through the legs. No, that is that is the video release. Yeah, the one sheet though is Matt on. Uh, I think it's uh, Frank McCarthy painting, maybe of of. Um of Dean Martin on the motorcycle with, you know, like a half a dozen women on it with him. With the sleigh girls. No, the one I was looking at, I just, I, it just felt like it was a four year eyes only riff. And I thought maybe uh, Dean had done it first, but to be fair, they, he definitely did the uh, magnetic pull down of the zipper first before uh, Roger Moore ever got to it. And you get the, the kind of bondish throwaway gag of riding the uh, motorcycle sidecar through the swamp and coming out with an alligator in the sidecar you know it kind of reminds <laughs> genius reminds me of you know the lotus coming up out of the sea and bond dropping the fish out the window you know so i i was so happy with that moment i loved it and just what you were as you were saying like i i think this might be dean martin's strongest performance that i've seen so far in the role i like him in the silencers but um murder's row as you said it's He's charming, he's fun to watch, but you don't get the sense he's engaged as he is here. Every scene I could really feel that he was locked in. And there's like the whole sequence where he's at the firing squad. And it turns into this whole shtick about him using the laughing gas uh, through the cigarette on, you know, the guy who's going to say fire. The way they play this extended comedic scene just felt to me a little more ambitious than the type of comic scenes they've done in the previous two. Uh, I was really impressed with Dean Martin in this movie. I thought he was a ton of fun, although I did make a note at a certain point where I just wrote, I think I understand about 50% of Matt Helm's quips. <laughs> the other 50, I'm like, I don't really understand what he's saying. <laughs> There's one that has always been over my head till I saw it this recent time, that uh, about midway through the film when someone's mentioning uh, you know, th- that their their partner tried to kill them. And Matt Helm says, makes sense to me. It never occurred to me before. That's a Jerry Lewis reference. Okay. Can you give some context? What's the... Because because Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were the hottest comedy team uh, on TV and Vegas back in the 1950s and had a pretty acrimonious breakup. And, yep. You know, so, you know, your partner's trying to kill you. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> you know. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I, I had several of those moments in this film, but I've had that since the first film when he did the. Uh, there's the three people in the police station. He, he he names them, and I don't. I've never seen the show that he's referencing. Yeah, I can't remember what that is now. Sorry, but yeah, no, I, I can't remember that gag. But yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a it's a whole thing. But yeah, I, I there are definitely some dated. I say dated of their time references in this film. Yeah, I mean there are you know certain slogans that an audience today wouldn't get because uh, you know or or throwaway lines because they're referencing slogans from cigarette ads and you know beer commercials and things like that. So. So, yeah, if you're not well-versed in uh, the culture of the 1960s, a lot of it would be over your head. Mm. This did have one of the funniest exchanges, I think, in the series so far, though, when he's by the pool. And there's the woman who's kind of giving him the alluring eyes. And the guy next to him says, you don't want anything to do with her. And uh, Matt Helm goes, why not? And he goes, I'm her husband. <laughs> yeah. And just, like, walks away. I, I thought that was, like, remarkably funny for, like, a lot of the time... The comedy in Matt Helm films, I find, is kind of more of the groan-inducing material, right. which can be fun. Like, I've enjoyed the, you know, my experiences the previous two times, but it's the kind of thing where you kind of, like, roll your eyes. But I thought that was actually, like, a really well-timed and funny quip. Yeah, I felt so, too. I really, really enjoyed that moment. And uh, and as you say, yeah, for me, there's there's still a lot of groaners here, particularly when Matt's at the rehabilitation center, not unlike Thunderball, mm. um, you know, where, with all the... I don't know, with all the jokes involving women. Uh, definitely, I think women of this era would have a very hard time sitting through these films. I would agree <laughs> yeah. with that. I, I think I think women of, of the 1960s era would have problems sitting through this film, let alone now. You're probably correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, you, I, I think you have to take these films really as as a time capsule. I don't think you can sort of put today's morality on them. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think they would really work at all. I think you'd go insane if you tried. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we did the Goldfoot films. We're already slightly insane, but not that far. Yeah, I always say you you really can't judge the actions of the past by the moralities of today. It's a fool's errand. No. So. But Cam, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Something you liked from the film. Yeah, I thought some of the action in this movie was actually really well done. Which that has been one of my complaints, not just with Helms, but some mm -hmm. of the other kind of Bond-inspired spy films of the 60s where once you get to the action stuff, it can feel like a real drag and kind of slow-paced. Mm -hmm. I thought there was a couple in here that were actually really well-staged, maybe a little dated in some aspects, but like the brewery chase where he's like chasing the guy through that brewery and it all ends with the guy getting sucked up a tube and spit out and dropped as a dummy. Yeah. Like down a long distance. I was like, that was a blast. Like, is it paced as well as an action scene from you know, nowadays, or even a classic Bond movie? Maybe not. But in terms of, like, coming up with a sequence, taking it from beginning to end, I thought it was a lot of fun. And I thought the finale with uh, Janice Rule on the runaway platform that's, like, with the saucer um, and Helm trying to catch up with that and, you know, the motorbike jumping over the tracks. Really some cool stunts there. Visually interesting. This one felt, I think, more ambitious in terms of kind of showing its action than the previous two i was i was going to mention this in my likes so i'll i'll kind of tag on with you a little bit there because they really take some chances with the cinematography strangely in this they're using fisheye lenses during mm. the sort of rooftop fight and i was like this is this is not matt helm what's going on here it's actually quite visually arresting and, and as you mentioned a sort of brewery fight 
they've i mean this is all set based stuff but it looks it's a very interesting set yeah and obviously it's got a lot of pipes that seem to attract bullets <laughs> and i can see where uh, alien got its design for the mech walker from which is from this film what was that that was crazy that was yeah. i mean despite all the like kind of bond or spy crossover stuff it was those power lifter suits that was the most jaw-dropping when i saw those yeah i was waiting for for ripley to turn up and uh give matt helm a good uh roughing up and they had fun with it when you had Janice rule in that power loader like hurling barrels at one of the bad guys like that's a really cool concept and mm. You know, you think about 1967, this was not something that was done frequently. This was a kind of original concept for an action scene, and I think it's pretty well done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would I would say, too, that final action scene uh, you were talking about with Janice Rule, despite all the really bad wire work, including on her being you know, set down on his motorcycle. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, you had bad wire work on the the plane and Goldfinger back then too. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, but but you know what a lot of these kinds of movies when they're doing an action scene, they're trying to think of other action films and how to outdo them and make it really tough and this and resting. And it seems to me like they went a different way with this movie and thought, how are we going to do this action at the end? And well, you know, let's go back and look at some Buster Keaton films. Mm. Yeah. Because some of those stunts are right out of Buster Keaton movies. You know. Hey, if you're gonna steal, steal from the best, right? Absolutely. I think it also is testament to just how influential this film series has been on others going forward. We mentioned some of the things that Bond will go on to do that happen in this film, but also, again, this is so many Austin Powers things in this film. I'm I'm looking forward to tackling those films down the line, and I'm glad we're doing these first because they really do inform the Austin Powers films. I wish they'd done more with the flying saucer because I felt like if you're ever going to go real spy-fi kind of stuff, I was like, mm. please go nuts. Like, go crazy with the flying saucer in this movie. And they don't really, but, oh well. At least there's one there. Can you imagine being in the same year where, like, Connery almost goes to space and Matt Helm almost goes to space? That's so weird for the spy genre in 67. And Casino Royale, which also has a UFO in it. Yeah. Isn't the second Flint from 67? I believe so. I think yep. it is. and Yeah, and he did go to space. Four spies in space. Oh, close to, anyway. Wow. No, no, Flint made it. He's the only one that made it. But that was also kind of, you know, before we had set foot on the moon, but there was a, a lot of coverage on the news mm. of NASA and what they were up to and, you know, spacewalks and all that sort of thing. So it was very much in the zeitgeist then. For sure. I just wanted to, uh, you both kind of tackled my major likes. Bruce, you also sort of mentioned the gadgets. I did get a little chuckle out of the uh, the candid brassiere. We look back in Murderer's Row. The only way for for old uh, Mac to get in contact with Dino was to uh, go in the old bottle of booze. This time he's on the the ladies' <laughs> bra because, of course, that's where Matt Helm is going to be. Definitely. And the booze is now his mouthwash. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Now with only thirty six percent more calories. Uh, no, no. Cavities. Now with only thirty six percent more cavities. Thank you. Yes, cavities. Um. I but I suppose the only thing I'll throw out is it, it is always a delight to hang out in matt helm's world like i i know the you may or may not like the sort of training sequence slash spa that he's at at the beginning but like that's where i had a lot of the fun was just seeing how bizarre that world is that matt helm lives in uh, and how he's especially like the training sequence on the train yeah 
when they're doing spy training. It's like swapping seats. and That was cool. A lady is eating a, a boiled egg that sounds like she's crunching on, I don't know, something that isn't a boiled egg. Very strange. <laughs> the, 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 the folly noises in that made me cringe a little bit. I don't like ASMR, so hearing that old lady munch on an egg for about four minutes. Ugh, didn't do anything for me there. But yeah, great just to see just the bizarre world of ice. I was fascinated by that rehab center where it's like a lot of like playful hijinks, but then also like um, Sheila Summers running out in a straight jacket with white hair uh, and with like white makeup yep. on her face. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and it's uh, again, in its sort of Elvis movie aspect, you know, in the very beginning, we get Dean's latest hit. Everybody loves somebody, which is reprised at the end when he's uh, uh, with think Sheila Summers at the end uh and and not only is he with the woman there and you hear the song playing no it's not Sheila Summers whoever it is not only do you hear the song playing at the end you see right behind him right over his shoulder prominent in the frame yeah the latest Dean Martin album <laughs> yeah it doesn't miss a beat does it it doesn't but it still gets a good old Frank Sinatra stab in there as well which I, I appreciate yeah and a Perry Como one as well. Yeah, yeah. but they're mm-hmm. not even trying mm-hmm. to hide the fact that oh yeah, you know this is Dean Martin and yeah he's playing Matt Helm and you know th- this is a universe where both can coexist. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents! Independent podcasting, much like the Spy Game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting. Or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? It's a great time to catch up on episodes like Spice World and Catch Me If You Can, and of course also The Debrief, our new show where we look at the biggest spy news of the month and determine the ripple effects it'll have on the genre going forward. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Right, well, we've spoken about it a little bit, but let's dive in deeper. Dislikes. Bruce, something you didn't like about this film. Uh, I, the thing I don't like about it is just how so much of it looks like a TV episode of that era. You know, because so they, the, the location shooting in Mexico is nice, but then you cut to these interiors that you know look like they could be for my dream a genie you know they yeah uh they they weren't exactly spending a, a lot of money on those uh, the brewery is a little bit of a departure from that and i noticed in at least one scene part of that's um you know uh, an optical illusion thing with a, a glass painting i think but um but yeah it's it's just that kind of set bound quality of so much of it i think you know takes it down a few notches i have the feeling that with each film I know they were making a little less at the box office each time out, and I think that was reflected probably in the budgets of them going down a little bit each time. Uh, so when you get to the last one, boy, you guys be prepared. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, I was going to ask Cam, I don't know if you tracked it, but obviously Bruce has just alluded to the, the profits not growing, but were the budgets going down? 
Ooh, it's more of a Bruce question. I have to pull up my old notes to answer that one. Yeah, I'm not sure about the budgets. I do have some figures here on the box office. Uh, let's see, Silencers made 16 million, Murderers Row 13 and a half, Ambushers 10, Wrecking Crew only made five. And the average budget for across all four is about 3.6 million. So if you're spending nearly $4 million to make a movie that's going to earn back five, I think that answers as much as anything why they didn't go on beyond that. Yeah, I think what happened was, from what I'm seeing, the uh, silencer's budget was a little bit lower, but I think they boosted that budget for Murderer's Row. Mm. Like I think silencer's were like 3.5, and they went higher for Murderer's Row and then dropped it down to four for this one. That makes sense. That makes sense. But yeah, I I totally get what you're saying on that one, though, Bruce. It does... Like it almost feels like they could just walk onto the set of Batman or Star Trek or something. It 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 feels exactly like that world. And if you're looking at what James Bond is doing in You Only Live Twice the exact same year, or even Casino Royale '67, I'll say it. Like you look at that Berlin set. Hmm. That's that's miles better than what we're seeing in this film. True. Yeah. It's like they didn't learn lessons from the Bond franchise that like. People love this, like, really just larger-than-life, incredible visuals, locations, and making everything look great. Uh, they didn't really pick that up so much as, like, the gadgets, you know, the the attractive female leads, things like that. It didn't seem like they really <laughs> picked up on the film quality aspect, the filmmaking element. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that is um, Irving Allen and his desire, perhaps, to keep the budgets lower. Because I know he was involved in several other projects at the same time. He did Cromwell, of all things. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, but at this, right after this one, he produced uh, another spy movie. Um, man, I just blanked on the name of it. Hammerhead, I think? Yeah, Hammerhead, yeah. Oh, yeah. With Vince Edwards, mm -hmm. yeah. Vince Edwards, whose wife appears in this one in the beginning. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, I remember seeing Hammerhead years ago on CBS Late Movie or something like that. Not a very good film. Um, a little more serious, but again, has the obviously shot on a lower budget problem, you know. Oh, whoa, Bruce, you're ruining our review ahead of time. Don't spoil it for <laughs> sorry. us. It could be amazing. Sorry, sorry. Well, again, I haven't seen it in 30 years. I may be, have a different opinion now. Um, Something tells me that it won't, but I'm going to trust you on your second point. Uh, Casino Royale, on the other hand, that's one that they just spent gobs of money on. Uh, there's a couple of stories I heard about that at at one point, they were so far over budget and, and uh, over schedule that they were calling it Cleopatra on the Thames because yeah, it was just costing so much to make shooting there in London. Uh, and I heard some story that there was uh, a guy still working on doing some of the special effects and a guy came by and saw him working on it and said, wait, you're still doing this? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, well, they stopped shooting three weeks ago. <laughs> No. That, that sounds pretty much on track for what we've learned over Casino Royale over the last few years. Um, crazy film, crazy film. Yeah, I, I think they probably spent more on the, or about as much on the phone budget for uh, You Only Live Twice as they did on the Matt Helm movies. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> true, 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 true. Um, well, I'll I'll jump in with my dislike. I think for me, one of the things that this film is seriously lacking compared to. The first two is a strong female partner for Dean Martin to bounce off of. You guys might disagree with me. And I'm sure both, you know, 
Janice Rule and Centerberg are fantastic in other films that they've been in. But for me, neither of them worked in this film. Comparing it to what, like, what Anne Margaret or Camilla Sparva bringing in Murderer's Row, or Stella Stevens and Dahlia Larvey were bringing in The Silences, I think it was just not not the right sort of double act for me this time around. I, yeah, I, I feel kind of the same way in that neither Santa Berger or um, Janice Rule are delivering bad work. No. Like, they're both committed to the world of Mad Helm, and, you know, they're there to have fun. But when you look at Silencers, the, like, klutzy energy of Stella Stevens really informs what that movie is. When you get to the second one, kind of that <laughs> kinetic energy of Anne Margaret just dancing the night away really gives that movie a very specific feel because of her presence. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you ask me, like, what do these two contribute to kind of the overall energy of ambushers? I'm like, well, like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like Santa Berger is having more fun. She gets to play kind of the exotic spy who's up to no good, be kind of seductive. But, like, what really is she kind of adding? What is she kind of adding to the ingredients of the overall movie? And I kind of scratch my head trying to figure it out. Plus, she's, like, very unceremoniously just, like, dispatched in the movie where I thought she'd come back, and then she never did. And I was like, oh, okay. And Janice Rule, there's, like, obviously, we've talked about it, but there's, like, the sexual um, assault stuff involving the villain but also at a certain point in the movie again another villain tries to pull her into the back of a car and threaten her with sexual assault again and it's like ooh, okay but like what does this character contribute they set her up as someone who has due to the treatment she received from the villain she's not all there you know like she is um uh, she's kind of lost her sanity to a certain degree from, you know, shell shock or what have you, PTSD, however they would define it in the 1960s. Um, so when she goes with Matt Helm, the idea is she doesn't really know who she is or what's going on and that she thinks they're married. But that's quickly dropped yep. when she says, no, I was just playing along. I knew who you were as soon as I saw Matt Helm. So at that point forward, what is this character? <laughs> and I don't have a good sense of it by the end of the movie where she's, essentially on that runaway platform as sort of like a damsel in distress type, but there's no real personality. But she's also meant to be like the best pilot that ICE have, a very competent agent herself. Which they don't do anything with. Why is she not flying around in that flying saucer at the end? Why does she not save Matt and they both fly off? She's she's the Holly Goodhead of, of the ambushers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have... Um... I have to agree mm. with you on, on most of those points there. My problem with Janice Rule is I'm sure she's a wonderful actress, wonderful dramatic actress. It takes a special kind of persona, I think, to play a female role in one of these films. And, you know, Dahlia Lobby nails it every time, you know, where she's fantastic taking it just seriously enough to make the, what she's doing believable, but also having a hell of a good time doing it. And that comes across. And with Janice Rule, I think she's a very good actress. I think maybe she's having fun on the set, but she doesn't have that spark that, you know, Anne Margaret has in Murderer's Row. Of course, Anne Margaret has spark in everything she does, you know, even though she's a good dramatic actress as well. <laughs> I it, I was going to say, like, with those two names that we said, Sarah Stevens and, and Anne Margaret sort of being the, the lead females in both films, their energy level is so much higher than Dean Martin's, they bring up the pace, they bring up the energy of the film. Whereas I think Santa Berger is doing the whole sort of cool spy 
double agent, not sure what she's going to do. And Janice Rule is sort of, despite being a, a very well sort of put together spy who should be equaling Matt Helm, it's sort of insinuated that she can, uh, is playing sort of the doting housewife through most of the film. That's true. And, and she's, her energy is down there with Matt. So no one's really pushing the energy further than Dean Martin. And Dean Martin's whole shtick is chilling out. It's true. And when you look at Stella Stevens and um, and Margaret, they're overpowering Dean Martin in several mm-hmm. scenes. They are the ones who are taking the real spotlight. Whereas I don't think either of the female leads in this movie ever really take the spotlight from him in a scene. Yeah, and interestingly, Dean Martin allows them to take the spotlight. I think he, you know, I think Dean was a really talented performer, you know, doing nightclubs, doing television, doing movies. And, uh, you know, he's he gave really good performances in a number of films, Sons of Katie Elder, you know, Rio Bravo. Um, and yet you get something like these Matt Helm movies where he really just seems to be phoning it in more or less, you know. So I think he was really talented, but also kind of lazy. And, you know, the, the, in that the year he made The Ambushers, he made $5 million, which was an ungodly amount of money in that, that era, you know. Yeah, again, that's from TV performances, nightclub performances, and the films, you know. Well, there's the whole, like, you only live twice argument, again, same year, with is Sean bored? Is he not engaged in this film or not? And And I always come down on... He's engaged in the film. He's just a spy who's confident and doesn't need to be overexcited all the time. I don't think Dean Martin's bored in these films. I think he's having as much a good time as Dean Martin can have, but he's not he's not being stretched, whereas Rio Bravo would be a very good example of him actually stretching his, his uh acting wings. But yeah, it's 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 a shame, I think, with the the females of this film, the lead one certainly anyway. Cam, did you have a, a dislike for us? Well, I mean, honestly, you kind of took the one that I was really thinking there, but in terms of pace for me and i feel like a broken record because this has come up with the previous two matt helms sure where once it kind of turns to the villain plot and spends a lot of time on it it kind of to me just starts to drag and this villain plot i love the theft of the flying saucer i think that's genius and the way they're paying off you know with these (laughs) dudes turning into like throbbing red figures running around screaming i'm like perfect that's great it's when they kind of tie all the kind of intrigue that's secondary to what the villain's up to the idea that he wants to you know run a basically a bidding auction and then he's sold it anyway to like an asian buyer for like a whole bunch of money the whole lead up to that is obscured they want you to sit there and try to figure out what the villain's up to i feel like this is the wrong series for that like i am more than happy to sit there and try and figure out what the villain is up to in like a Lacare like spy story or something or even a more ambitious bond film say like a casino royale or something sure the uh 2006 one not the 67 one <laughs> that one you definitely have to think about it to figure out what he's up to but mm. not to the movie's credit um but these movies they are such like a just showpiece for gags like you're showing up just to have fun with the characters it's like austin powers doesn't ask me to sit there and listen to Dr. Evil stretch out a villainous plot for like 40 minutes of obscured motivation stuff. It's like, just give me a very basic concept, like a stolen UFO. I'm happy. Now just give me like 90 minutes of racing through it to get to a big conflict over the saucer. Perfect. I wish they'd learned that lesson. 
So you're saying this film would be improved if Albert Salmi sung just the two of us? <laughs> I mean, any movie would be improved by that. But yeah, who would he sing it to in this one? <laughs> you didn't think that through, did you? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I'll go with Dino because why not? At least he could sing back. Okay, sure. I saved that, didn't I? I saved that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's better if it's him and like one of his henchmen. The guy maybe, who keeps um, saluting him. Kurt Kasner, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and the two of them are being levitated at the time and are floating through the air singing it to one another. On highly visible wires. Obviously. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Making castles in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to let us go without mentioning a big thing that annoyed me in this film. And I think it's where the, the seams are starting to show with the budget. And that is the god-awful rear projection. Yeah. I mean, that, that motorcycle chase is rough at the end. Like you, I'm pretty sure you can see the seams of the rear projection. Like it's <laughs> along with the strings flying by as well. Like it was a, a a bad few minutes. I think it wasn't great in the previous two either. The rear projection. Uh, it was not uncommon in movies back then for a lot of films to have bad. I mean, the Bond films of the early '60s, I think, have pretty rough rear projection too. But yeah. Mm. Actually, yeah, You Only Live Twice from the same year has some terrible rear projection. Well, Thunderball Bond landing in the jetpack. And Thunderball on the boat. How dare you? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I just, I suppose this one jumped out to me because at the same time, Dean Martin is riding a motorcycle with a ray gun. So sure. it, it all kind of compounds and just feels a bit weird. Well, the, the, the entire film series to me is, is weird. It's an anomaly. Like I say, it's, it's not... It's spy movie, but it's not. It's you know, I don't. It's it's like a Dean Martin variety special that had that's spy themed. We enjoy these little diversions in that sense. I think it's nice to see what other other companies try to do with the the formula that Bond made famous. I would say. I mean, they're they're playing and they're inventing their own things that would later be riffed. I mean, you know, our man Flint famously had the secret volcano lair before. Right. You only live twice had it. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of going back and forth. Even Casino Royale '67 did things that would Bond films would later take on as well. Well, and again, and again, the producer of the the Helm movies was Irving Allen, who had been partnered with Cubby Broccoli and Warwick Pictures in the 1950s, and was still sharing a partner's desk with him yep. in the 1960s as Cubby's getting richer and richer off the Bond films. And he basically was watching this, saying, "I want some of that." Yeah. So he picked up a Matt Helm book as he was getting on an airplane and said, this'll do it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think then before we wrap up and head to the knock list, I'm just going to throw out to any final notes that we've got left over in our notepads. Bruce, do you have anything left for us? Oh, I'm sure I have plenty if I go back and look through the notes. But off the top of my head, no, I think we've covered all the highlights, such as they are for this film. For sure. I, I wanted to point out two things. Uh, Cam, what do you have? I mean, the instant motel was incredible the inflatable tent that turns into like a like four-star hotel or something i thought that was a great gag uh very funny you knew exactly where it was going but when it got there you were like that delivered i applaud you you have to suspend a lot of disbelief with that to see it go from the inflated <laughs> lamp to an actual lamp an inflated icebox to an actual lamp. What are, you, what are you inferring, Bruce? Are you saying that isn't possible? Well, you know, and I was thinking, how are they powering the lamp? Is it off the car battery? Uh, you know, ah, it's, yes, it's, it's, yes. Yeah, logic. but, you know, again, that's the problem. You cannot apply logic to these movies. They're basically cartoons. No, 
And speaking of applying a tad amount of logic, uh, one one of the gadgets we haven't mentioned is the the metal melting ray beam thing that melts people's belts. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I just I just wrote down like twice. It's very discriminate with what it melts because you know one wrong move, your fillings are going, your buttons are going, your shirts are falling off. It just seems to affect belts. Which I find fascinating. If it's also, if it can melt your belt buckle, you would think it could also melt your zipper, which would be really painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at least this one, because the previous ones we had like novelty guns at the end of the movie. This movie worked in two things, where you had the levitator gun and the melting thing. So it's like, okay, at least we had two kind of big weapon gadgets to power through the movie. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. And the levitator seems to work with any substance. It will levitate people. It will levitate, you know, whiskey bottles. You know, doesn't matter how big, how small, what they're made out of. But much like proton packs, you can't cross the stream. (laughs) Did you like the levitating gun? Did it make you laugh or did you appreciate it as much as, say, like the reverse gun or uh, the one in the first? What was the gun in the first movie? The backwards firing gun. Okay, then what was the second one? The, The delay gun. Delayed, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think we might end up having to rank them when we've done all four films, because I imagine there's going to be something mm-hmm. in the Wrecking Crew as well, but I think so far I've had the most amount of fun with the delay gun, actually. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I'm going to go with the Bazir gun. Ah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, a good yeah, one, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, slight Austin Powers connections, I mentioned Austin Powers off the top, but there's another pretty big uh, Austin Powers steal in this film, and that is a certain spy that walks around with the fez on and sunglasses, which is later lampooned in Austin Powers and the International Man of Mystery by Mr. Will Ferrell. That was a lot of fun. I wish he'd been more of a character, because he doesn't really have anything distinct about him other than the fez and the glasses. He, he does, for some reason, ask for a, a bottle of whiskey. He does, yes. Which he uses to escape, I understand, but like it's... Uh, I'm, I'm sure he had other ways. It's, just, it's, it's like, uh, could I take some whiskey? And they're like, yeah, sure. And just levitates it to him, which I find weird. That's these films for you, I suppose. Yes. Anything else for us, Cam? Well, I guess there is one little thing. Uh, people that follow us on social media will be somewhat aware of this. But um, the fates were really looking upon us when it came to visiting Matt Helm this latest chapter. Because I was at a local thrift sh- uh, shop recently. And came across a Dean Martin Christmas ornament. It's from the Hallmark Collection. And it's him singing in front of a Vegas sign advertising the Rat Pack. And it plays a song that ties beautifully into this week's movie. Anyhow, I'm going to turn that off before we uh, get a uh, takedown notice from the owners of that music. <laughs> yeah, we'll get Dean Martin coming after us from the grave. It, it does nothing for me, but if you play uh, Sinatra doing Strangers in the Night, you know, it's a, that's a different story. <laughs> it will really warm you up. <laughs> um, I have one little note I forgot to mention. Just if you're watching this film for the podcast and you're watching along, pay attention when you're looking at the pool scene because you'll see Dean Martin walking around in a lovely shirt with vertical stripes on his shirt, which is generally the fashion at the time. But uh, Kirk Kasner's character of Quintana is dressed in a shirt that has 
just tons of horizontal lines going down. It's all folded and frilly on top of each other. It looks like he's wearing Venetian blinds. Huh. It is the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and I cannot find any proof this shirt existed in fashion. It is a one-off Quintana special. It was part of the new wave look. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're wearing it right now, Scott. I don't know why you're so confused. I, I don't know either. I think I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just... I've been ambushed, and I've been taken over by the Dean Martin. But let's talk about it. Knocklist time. The Silencers, Murderer's Row did not make the knocklist. Cam, as we have a guest, please just run us through what we're doing here with knocklist. Yes, the knocklist is our tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we've talked about a movie, we determine whether it belongs in the pantheon of all-time great spy films. So some movies that have made it on. Well, Goldfinger made it on. Uh, the first few of the Conneries made it on. I think You Only Live Twice actually did too in a very... Very heated debate that uh, I'm still um, traumatized by. But also, um, Zero Dark Thirty made it on, North by Northwest. It's a fairly diverse collection of movies, we got to say. Absolutely. And every week we vote on if the film we're talking about gets to go on the list or not. So this is Dean Martin's third chance to get on the knock list. And we have three votes. Bruce, you have the first vote. Take us away. Yes or no? Is the ambushers making the knock list? Oh boy. Well, see, I feel like you should have at least one representative sample of every spy series. And and the Dean Martin, Matt Helm series arguably ran longer than most of the others. And out of the three, I'd say for me, this one holds up a little better than the others do. So if I were going to pick one, this would be the one I'd pick. That said, it's not even in the same galaxy as North by Northwest, <laughs> you know. I think I think that's where we get stuck a lot of the time. There's a lot of these 60s franchises we've looked at so far, and only a few of them outside of Bond have actually stuck the landing. Our man Flint yeah. got it on there, but even that was a close vote. I had to really fight for that one to make the list. Yeah, it, it's a toughie, but okay, that's one yes. So it could happen today. The ambushers could get on the list. Cam, you're up next. What do you think? I'm a no on this one. I, I just preferred Silencers. I think Silencers is the superior movie, even though I liked some of the elements but this one just as we talked about the female leads and for me the pace it just kind of holds this one back it is tough when you talk about a knock list with some of these 60s ones though like as bruce kind of indicated there where it's like a lot of them aren't great and you can acknowledge the impact but when you're talking about putting them on kind of a list of high quality stuff it's hard to sometimes make that argument even though you really appreciate what they contributed to the overall genre. So, like, I kind of, in a way, instead of looking at it by series by series, I kind of look at it by just the era, and I feel better about, say, like, Our Man Flint than I do about at least the ambushers. I mean, a lot of people are still quite sad about the liquidator not making the list, I have to say. <laughs> Rod Taylor really missed out a chance mm. there. Yeah. 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 Mm. But one yes, one no, it's all to play for. It's actually nice that my vote means something. But if you've been listening along, you're probably going to know where this is going because this is the one I had the most amount of trouble watching. I, I agree with Cam. I, I think The Silences was the most successful and probably so far had the most amount of chance to stick in the landing. And even then we had some problems with the film. So it's going to be a no from me. I I just, I think this is the most dated of the Matt Helm films. It feels like a sort of boozy, seedy 60s film 
Whereas I think the other two kind of escape that a little bit. That they kind of break out of that haze. And I think Dean is better in it. I think the scripts are better. I think the co-stars are better in the other two films. So this one's definitely not making an knock list for me. We're sorry, Bruce. You got your vote for yes, but there was two votes against us. As such, The Ambushers is not making the knock list. But the dossier on The Ambushers is complete and filed as classified. Bruce, what a champion soldiering through technical issues and watching the ambushes once again for us uh we humbly thank you for taking the time to speak to us this has been a pleasure i have one last thing to say which is uh when you watch the matt helm movies i think you have to take the attitude that these are your grandfather's spy films <laughs> you know they're not yeah. going to be hold up well by today's standards uh, you know, like a lot of classic films do, and and if these other three didn't make the uh, make it onto the list, then Matt Helm movies don't have a chance because again, you're in for a rough ride with the last one, I think. But uh oh, <laughs> it's interesting. Cause it's, it's interesting you say that, Bruce, because we've actually heard mixed things. I I think um, Bill Koenig was said if we preferred the silences, we'll probably quite enjoy the Wrecking Crew. Uh, when he was on for Murderer's Row, the second film. So I, I, I'm holding out hope. But then again, you have written the book on Matt Helm. So if you're telling us we're going to have problems, we're probably going to have problems. But I definitely agree. I, from like a pure just sitting down and enjoying a film, I think these Matt Helm films have been very much an enjoyable ride. Very easy to sit through. Very easy to hang out with Dean Martin. Much better than like the Goldfoots, for instance. <laughs> they were punishment. This isn't punishment. This is this is this is hanging out with Dean Martin, boozing around Las Vegas and hearing him tell stories about the Rat Pack. Basically, sign me up. To me, these are a lot like David Lynch movies. In that, I like a lot of David Lynch's movies. I like them as I'm watching them. I often don't feel like I need to ever watch them again. And I certainly couldn't recommend them to anyone because it's such a kind of personal experience you have with it when you watch it. It either works for you or it doesn't. I would totally watch a David Lynch Matt Helm film. <laughs> now that's an idea. <laughs> that, that's a zany, zany idea. I... Even now, there is there has been talk for twenty years of a new Matt Helm movie, and I think uh, I think George Clooney has some of the rights to it. They were getting pretty close yeah. a few years back with um, Bradley Cooper playing Matt Helm, so it would be interesting to see if anyone ever does take another run at this and do it in a more Donald Hamilton style. But but then again, I feel like they have no recognition outside people who enjoy spy movies they do feel somewhat forgotten in the bunch i, I mean like, i feel the uh derek flint films get a little bit more love because even they're even called out in the austin powers films they they tend to be slightly more connected and they're usually the first one people go to after james bond when you think of 60s spy films sometimes the man from uncle comes up too uh, and, and that's a shame. I think that Dean Martin has a lot to offer and the series has a lot to offer, especially if you're exploring the roots of things like Austin Powers, because it really can be found here. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, part of the reason I wrote the book was a lot of the behind the scenes stuff of these movies is as interesting to me as what you see on the screen. You know, and, and again, how just just how they impacted the Bond films. I think if Dean Martin hadn't been making these films, Sean Connery probably would have kept playing Bond after You Only Live Twice for a little while longer. For sure. For sure. Well, Bruce, before we let you go, we're going to put links to everything in the show notes below so people can find the book. But, you know, what are you working on at the moment and where can people find more from you online? 
Well, I do have a website, brucecivilly.com, that I don't update as often as I should. Since last June, I've started a publishing, I actually resuscitated a publishing company to when I used to do the Batman book and, and the, the Matt Helm book called Henry Gray Publishing. You can go to henrygraypublishing.com where I've published uh, my latest novel, which is the last stage about the final days of Wyatt Earp. But I'm also publishing novels by my other writer friends because I happen to know a lot of writers who have those novels stuffed away in the bottom drawer and never did anything with them, you know. So we're trying to get them out there so people can read them. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, we'll put links to everything in the show notes below. People can go find out more about your books. And if you are a fan of the Matt Helm films, I would definitely recommend picking up your book. It's it's given me the research I needed for this film and we'll be using it for, for the Wrecking Crew, no doubt at all. So thank you for that, Bruce, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've had a blast. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat on the ambushes. Three Matt Helm films down. No knock list yet, but it could still happen. You never know. But Cam, the question goes to you. What are we talking about next week? Well, we've been talking about 60s secret agents. And we're going to jump over to an icon, Sean Connery, who, of course, was James Bond. But we're going to look at 1990s Russia House based on the John le Carre novel. I'm looking forward to this one. This is going to be our second le Carre. It's been a while since we tackled The Little Drummer Girl, so I'm looking forward to a uh, revisit to the author's world and hopefully a better one. Yes, hopefully an improvement from the Diane Keaton film. That still haunts my dreams. Uh, that is a tough one to go back to. So hopefully it's a step up, but it's got Sean in it, and we have a fantastic guest lined up for us next week as well. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we watch 1990s Russia House. And if you like what you heard on this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember, Matt Helm, it's good for what ails you. (laughs) 